Well, Father in heaven, thank you for this mercy that you've given me to minister to my brothers and sisters your word. And I pray that your living and active word, your word that is is sharper than any two-edged sword, would speed ahead and be honored among us this morning. May this sermon, in a very real way, be an on-ramp for Josh Stevens, who we pray for, as he comes here in a couple weeks. Oh, Lord, I join this dear church in asking you to make your will known. Would this be the next shepherd here at Cape Bible? Oh, Lord, have your way. Your ways are always good. You do all things well. And so we anticipate you continuing to confirm the steps of this, your local church. So, Lord, be with us now as we seek to see Jesus. That's our aim. Would you open our eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear the Lord of glory, in whose name we pray? Amen. Storms. I love storms. I love a good storm in Louisville, where I'm from. And you probably get them here. They come rolling through. I mean, it's like a bowling alley for thunder. I mean, they, it just comes rolling through. And we have things. Do you have them here? We have tornado warning things, these sirens that go off every Tuesday just to make sure we're alert and things are ready. That's not very comforting, right? To know you live in a place where every week you hear this siren. I'll be teaching usually on Tuesday at noon, and I hear that siren And uh, it reminds me of the power of God through storms. And I love a good storm whether I'm on campus or whether I'm at home. And you can look out the window and you feel relatively safe, right? You're in your home or you're in a building full of bricks. And and you're not worried about that thunder, that lightning, that wind that's howling and the rain that's crashing down. You're not so worried about it because you're in a safe haven. Well, that's a a natural storm. What about the storms of life? And I know this can become cliche, as preachers will often talk about the storms of life, but those things are real. And I had one, I don't know if I've shared with you some time ago, as as a parent, there's nothing probably more hard than having one of your children sick. My son, my 13-year-old son, who you've met, I point here because he's often with me here. He's not with me today. He's feeling well. But back in January, he battled covid And then he was fine, we thought, and then a fever came roaring back. So we ended up spending 16 days at Norton Children's Hospital as we were earnestly praying for my Michael to shake what became an abscess on his liver. I don't know if you know anything about an abscess, but it was wreaking havoc on his body. And we had some really anxious moments. And of course, with COVID, I was the only one that was able to be in there, and I wouldn't have been anywhere else but I was there with him, and every day he would get more frail, he would be in pain, and they couldn't isolate the main problem for a number of days. They were pouring antibiotics into him, trying to cure or, you know, beat back this infection, and then they finally did a scan around his, or an ultrasound, and found this mass on his liver. Now, if you know anything about my background, my first wife went home to be with the Lord in 2014 because of tumors all over her body, a, a diagnosis of stage four breast cancer at 36 years old. And so when I'm in the hospital now, here we are some years later, and they're telling me, your son has a mass on his liver that we need to biopsy. Oh, storm. That's a storm. Now, praise be to God, they biopsied it and realized it wasn't a cancerous tumor. 
it was an abscess that they needed to, a uh, small procedure, but, but for him it wasn't small. For me it's not small. For a parent, you get this. So they're draining this thing that was quite large, and they get all that infection out, and they continue to pour him full of antibiotics. Well, 16 days of those kinds of things, and he finally got to go home because by God's grace, he was feeling so much better. Well, one of the things you do as a parent, uh, you, you try to encourage your son in the gospel that whole time. And, and my Michael's walking with the Lord, so I was able to disciple him through this, even as I'm saying, oh, Lord, help me so I don't become a basket case for my son. So we have this whiteboard in the hospital, and I put verses up there every day, different Bible verses. But the one that stayed, you know which one? Never moved for 16 days, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where Jesus says to Paul and to us, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And every day I'm like, Michael, look at that. And I'm like, Mike, look at that. <laughs> so I need to look at that. I need to remember that. But pointing his eyes to that great truth that Jesus is sufficient for the hour. And I don't know what you have going uh, on in your life right now, but I'm here to tell you as your elders will tell you, as you'll tell one another, I'm sure every week, Jesus is sufficient for the storm in your life today. When the wind picks up, when the seas get high with threatening white caps, what is your anchor? The question is, will it hold? Will it hold? Do you remember the great Hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less by pa Baptist Pastor Edward Mote back in 1836. Here's one of the stanzas. When darkness veils its lovely face, I rest upon unchanging grace. In every rough and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is what? That's right, that's right. And where did he get uh, a song like this. Where did he see it? He saw it in Hebrews 6, right? 19 to 20, where we're reminded about the promise of God for us in the gospel. So the author writes, we have this, what this? This promise of God, the gospel, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Well, my goal for this sermon, it seems like this is my goal every time I come here in one form or another, that we would see in Jesus our anchor for the storms of our lives and trust Him as the all-sufficient Savior that He is. So to that end, I want to ask you or invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 verses 35 to 41, where we're going to see Jesus, the great stiller of storms. So Mark 4, 35 to 41. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, you know what I'm going to say, that's okay. And, and the elders may get on me later for saying that. Why would it be okay at a Bible church to not have your Bible? Well, it's okay because of the way I preach. You're going to hear this text repeated and we're going to look at things but you can just listen so if you don't have a bible you just sit back and listen to the word of god as i make it my aim to pour it over you for the next however many minutes so let me read this true story get it out before us and then we'll spend the remainder of our minutes in it on that day 
When evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking onto the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's a good question, right? Who is this? He speaks to the wind and the sea and they obey. Well, there's a context to this story. Let me set it up for you briefly as that will help us open up the story still more clearly. This story, notice, is filled with eyewitness characteristics. Why is that important? Because it supports the tradition that the Apostle Peter was the one who passed on reports of the words and actions of Jesus to his attendant, John Mark. So Mark, who wrote this gospel under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is doing oral history. He's hearing God-inspired narrative by the Apostle Peter, and he's writing it down, exactly as the Holy Spirit would have him do it. So Mark is doing oral history as he sits at the feet, as it were, of the Apostle Peter. Peter's saying, Mark, you've got to write this stuff down. I've got to tell you what happened on this boat as it reveals who Jesus truly is. So this story is filled with eyewitness characteristics uh, notice with me, I want you to see how this is grounded, rooted in history. Verse 45, phrases like the hour of the day. We read, when evening had come. That's interesting to me. That's grounding this in history. This is an eyewitness account. When evening had come. Or verse 36, the reference to the disciples taking Jesus with them, quote, just as he was. It's interesting, Peter saying, Mark, we, we just took him just as he was. Or verse 36, note the presence of other boats. So we're, we're able to see that there's not just one boat, but there's other boats. Verse 37, the boat filling up with water. That's a historical detail, an eyewitness account. We saw the water filling up the boat. Or verse 38, Jesus sleeping on not just a cushion, but the cushion. Remember, there was a cushion on the boat, and Jesus was asleep on the cushion. Find that fascinating? Verse 38, notice Peter relays to Mark the disciples' irritation. Right? <laughs> you see that in verse 38. What are you doing sleeping? I mean, he's admitting we were irritated, we were frustrated. What's he doing sleeping while we're about to die? I'll say more about that later. And then finally, we see in verse 40, Jesus' rebuke. Right? He does rebuke them, and Peter thinks it's important, God does actually, that we see that Jesus would actually have something to do about the situation when he woke up. Now that might be fascinating to you. And you might say, wow, we've got some eyewitness account that's grounding this thing in history. There's a real time and a real place with this event unfolding. This is non-fiction. This isn't a fictional story. But Mark's purpose, as you've come to know me, I want you to see Mark's real purpose here 
His purpose is not only to establish historical fact, though that's part of what he's doing here, but also theological truth. He wants us to see the theological meaning of this story, the theological truth that is on display, display in this story. See, this story fits Mark's overall purpose of revealing who Jesus is and what is at the heart of discipleship. That's more important than grounding this in historical scenery, which he's doing and which is important. But the theological truth is revealing who Jesus is and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So, I have an outline. I want to give it to you up front. I just want to ask two questions of this text. You can stay with me for two questions. And here's what I want to ask of this text. First, what does this story reveal about Jesus? Because he's here. And I want to see him. You want to see him. That's why you came to church this morning, right? Not to see me, but to see Jesus. Then the second question of two I want to ask, what does this story reveal about us? So Jesus and us. Let's take each one in turn. First question. What does this story reveal about Jesus? And here, just spoiler alert, I'm just going to tell you right now. (laughs) And then I'll try to show you, and then we'll repeat it at the end. But what does this story reveal about Jesus? Here it is. Jesus is Lord over nature, and therefore God. That's a big assertion, right? And I'm going to take some pains here to show you how I see that. But here's the bottom line. What does it reveal? This story about Jesus that by the grace of God we will not miss. This is no mere man. Jesus is Lord over nature and therefore God of very God in this boat. Look at verses 35 to 39. This is, uh, the, these are the verses I want you to see as far as who Jesus is. On that day... When evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. So Jesus takes the initiative. He says, come on, let's go to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Okay. Now a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. It was getting serious out on the water, right? But he was in the stern, asleep, on the cushion. Marvel at that. Chaos breaking out all around them. And what's he doing? Sleeping. This is amazing to me. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We're going to die in this storm. What are you doing? So he wakes and rebukes the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased And there was a great calm. Okay, we're going to come back to some of these details in a moment. But first, let me tell you a little bit about the boat. we got to use our sanctified imaginations to get into this boat. If I do my job right this morning, you're going to go sailing this morning. I want you in this boat. I want you feeling something of what these disciples were feeling. And then I want you to wonder at what Jesus does. Marvel at it. So in 1986, you got to know this, the hull of a fishing boat was recovered from the mud on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, about five miles south of Capernaum. Now, this boat, or this, the hull of this fishing boat they found in 1986, with carbon-14 technology, dates the boat between 120 B.C. and A.D. 40. That's interesting. 
to me. This bow was approximately 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet tall. So you get the image, you see this boat before you. It was propelled by four rowers, two on each side, and had a capacity of about 15 people. This was the kind of boat Jesus and the disciples were in on this day. A 26 and a half foot long, seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet tall fishing boat with a capacity of about 15 people. Now, the Sea of Galilee, you need to know this. Let me take you to the sea. It lies nearly 700 feet below sea level in a basin surrounded by hills and one massive mountain. See, cold air would come from the mountains. Mount Hermon, about 30 miles to the northeast, towers 9,200 feet. Now, that, that cold air that would come down from the mountains merges with the warm air off the water of the Sea of Galilee, creating conditions for a perfect storm. You see verse 37 there? It says, great windstorm. Yeah, that's possible and in fact happens. A great windstorm given this convergence of cold air swooping down, meeting the, the warm air. And here we've got the perfect conditions for a great windstorm. But that phrase, great windstorm, could actually be translated fierce squall or violent storm or even hurricane. That's what's happening on the Sea of Galilee pounding a 26 and a half foot fishing boat. Now the disciples, some you know, were veteran fishermen. And they're nervous. So you know this is a problem. If you've got, it's not like me going out on a fishing boat, which I just, I don't fish. I haven't fished a lot. So, you know, a little wind kicks up and I'm like, what's going on? No, probably wouldn't be that bad. But these are veteran fishermen. And they're gripped with fear, and Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat. So I could say the back of the boat. You wouldn't if you were a real fisherman. You would say the stern of the boat. Now look at verse 38. Here we come. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So gripped with fear, they're saying, Wake up! What's, don't you know what's happening? How could you be sleeping right now? But what I want you to see is that Jesus hears the cries of his people and he arises to action. Just stay with the story. Not moving out from it yet. That's what happens, right? He hears them and he doesn't say, hey, leave me alone. I'm trying to sleep. He awakes and he acts on behalf of his disciples. He hears their cries and he doesn't mock them or scorn them and say, what are you so afraid of? Just a little windstorm, come on. thought you were fishermen. doesn't shame them. But he arises and acts based on their cries. You see there in verse 39, he awoke and rebuked not them, but the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. What mercy, what kindness. What love. And notice what happened. Let's just make it plain. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. We should marvel at this. The authoritative word of Jesus was all it took to quiet the storm. The word of Jesus. 
He rebukes the wind like an unruly heckler, right? Like, be quiet. Stop talking. Why are you howling? Close your mouth. And it does. That wind obeys the authoritative word of Jesus. And the form of the verb, be still, in our text, speaks to an ongoing condition. So be still and stay still. This is the Lord speaking to His wind. It's His wind. He owns it. He tells it where to blow. And the sea can no longer roar because the wind is silent doldrums at the authoritative word of Christ. As you know, in the Old Testament, this is conduct, what we're seeing here, this is conduct reserved only for God. I mean, as you, you know your Old Testament, who's sovereign over nature? Who's the Lord over the wind and the seas and the, and the rain and the snow? Who brings the, the lightning out of his storehouses? Who's doing that? God's doing that. Only God is sovereign over nature. Let me remind you of, of God breaking in. Remember on Job? When Job was tempted to grumble and complain and kind of was. But God breaks in in Job 38 and says this to Job. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? And said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Isn't that amazing? God just says, Job, where were you? I was the one. When I called forth the sea, it, it burst forth. I said, no further. You will go no further, sea. And you proud waves, you will only roll according to my will. Job needed to hear that. Job needed to remember who was sovereign overall. And then furthermore, in the Old Testament, Psalm 89.9, remember, O Lord of hosts, here's the psalmist, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. O sovereign Lord, you rule, not I, not us. And then Psalm 107, verse 29, which I think this story is a fulfillment of he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Who does that? Only God. And here we see Jesus doing that very thing. He is saying to the storm, be still. And he's saying to the waves, hush. In fulfillment of Psalm 107, 29. You see, the disciples were starting to see the connection. Right? See in verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, the storm had stopped. What are they full, full of fear for? Right? There's something more fear gripping than the storm that had just happened. They realized, Oh my, who are we in the presence of? You'd think they'd be like, oh, the storm's gone. Woohoo! Everything's great. Let's relax. Can I have that cushion? No. It says they're filled with great fear. The storm may be gone. Doldrums throughout the sea, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're filled with great fear because they know their Old Testament, and they're realizing, who does this? Who speaks to the wind and the sea, and they obey Him? God. And that's the point. 
Jesus has done what only God can do and the disciples were starting to realize it. What does this story reveal about Jesus? He's Lord over nature and therefore God. Well, I have a second question. It's really the implication of my first question. What does this story reveal about us? It reveals this, at least. In the course of discipleship, we will go through storms. You say, that's not profound. Of course, I know that. I'm a Christian. I've been following Christ, you might say. And yeah, I know we will go through storms. But this is worth rehearsing and remembering that this episode, this nonfiction story, is in many ways a story about us, right? In the course of discipleship, we will go through storms. Now consider first who was in the boat. These were the men who had left their nets and tax booths and comforts of home to follow Jesus. These were the men who were enduring the scorn of the religious elite so they could serve the master. In other words, these were disciples. And we must remember that for disciples, you're not immune to the storms of the world. In fact, by God's express providence, He brings them into our lives. See, Jesus knew full well what was going to happen that evening on the Sea of Galilee. Right? Let's, let's not think, oh, this surprise, oh, this warm wind from, you know, the mountains came down, or excuse me, cold wind, met the warm wind of the Sea of Galilee. This is odd, I didn't see this coming tonight. What's happening? Oh, we got white caps. No, this didn't take Jesus by surprise. He knew full well what he was leading them into. Leading them into. Every gust of wind came at the precise time, direction, and speed that God ordained. No swells went higher or lower than determined by God. And every white cap crashed on divine cue. As if Jesus is the great conductor and he's saying, White cap, right now, need you a little bigger. You, a little lower. Wind, a little, little more violent. Hush, right there. He's orchestrating this whole thing. And every instrument of the sea and the air is doing his bidding. Following his command. This storm... No, did not take Jesus by surprise. William Cooper, in 1774, wrote one of my favorite hymns, and there's a stanza that captures this so well. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. That's what we see Jesus doing in this story. He is riding upon this storm and he's taking his disciples through it. Not around it, not over it, not under it, but through the eye of the storm. Apparently, so I'm just staying with these disciples. Why is he doing this? Well, apparently, there were things these disciples needed to learn about Jesus that only the storm could teach. There are things they needed to see, needed to feel, needed to learn about Jesus that I have to conclude could only be learned in the storm. And so it is with us. 
Remember in Mark 8, 24? And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone, not just you, 12, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, discipleship comes with a cross. The word for storm, right? Or in John 16, listen to the words of our Lord. He says, in the world you will have what? Tribulation, trouble. But he says, take heart. I've overcome the world. But he's honest with us, right? You will have tribulation. You will have trouble. And what I want to tell you is, it's designed by God for our good. He knows every ounce of trouble and has a purpose for it. In Acts 14, remember Paul and Barnabas? They went about, it says, they went about. Well, doing what? Well, doing at least this, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, God-ordained tribulations, God-ordained, that is, the one who does all things well, has ordained tribulations that we might enter the kingdom of God. And one more, here's Peter in an epistle now. He wrote two of them. He was on this boat, right? Don't forget that Peter was on this boat in Mark 4, and then he writes this in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. You know, like a a storm that comes out of nowhere on the Sea of Galilee. Don't be surprised at that. I remember a day when I was surprised at that. And I was irritated with Jesus, and I was saying, wake up, don't you know what's happening? But now he's writing, a little wiser. (laughs) Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And I know it feels strange in the midst of a storm. It feels strange. But he says it's not strange. It's God-ordained to test you. He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We know where the storms are taking us. Our Savior, let me put it this way, our Savior loves us too much to always withhold the storms. Do you believe that? He loves us too much to always withhold storms. Now, He often withholds them if we had eyes to see what He doesn't take us through. Mercy all the way. Grace upon grace. But our Savior loves us too much to always withhold the storm. See, through the storm, God teaches us precious lessons that apart from the storm, we could never learn. In the storm, I see, for example, my weakness, my utter hopelessness without Him. A storm has a way of doing that, right? Stripping us uh, free of all of our self-righteousness and our, our, our sense of strength. You think you're strong until a, a fierce a squall comes upon you. Yeah. So in the storm, I see my weakness and my, mutter, my utter hopelessness without Him. In the storm, I see more clearly my sin and ongoing need for forgiveness, right? 
In the storm, I, I see the fleeting pleasures of this world for what they are while making me long for my heavenly home. Can't a storm do that? I mean, storm after storm, when you realize, I long for the day when the storms will be no more. Brother, sister, that day's coming. That day's coming. So, so see through the storm to the glory that awaits us, right? These present sufferings, I don't count worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us, the children of God. See, in the storm, I see my God as mighty to save, my helper, my defender, the one who alone can uphold me with his righteous right hand. See, only in the storm can I hear the infinitely precious words of my Lord, peace, be still, right? I know nothing of that peace, be still, if I'm not first in the storm. See, apart from the storm, how would I ever truly know God's love and grow to love him as I should? Oh, saint, there is coming a day when we will say from the heart, like the psalmist, may not be today, but there's coming a day when we will say from the heart, like the psalmist, it was good for me to be afflicted. It was good. So I, I, I say this to some who aren't there yet. I know you're not able to say that yet with the psalmist, but, but by faith, hear the word of the Lord. There's coming a day, Christian, when you will say, he does all things well. And it was good for me to be afflicted. I'm beholding him like never before. So let me close with verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So after he says, peace be still, calms the storm, then he looks at them. I think he's looking at us this morning. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The question Jesus put to his disciples in the boat, he puts to us this morning. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Look what we just went through. A violent windstorm. And Jesus said, peace, be still. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The antidote to fear is faith. Fear is, is like a virus. What's the antidote? Faith. Faith in the one who bled for you. Faith in the one who died for you and rose on the third day for you. Faith in the one who intercedes for you. Do you realize he's interceding for you even now? We have a high priest who sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses and even now prays for his own. We have one who will surely come again to take us to himself. Indeed, we have a Savior who went through the hurricane of God's wrath against sin for us. The squall of judgment fell on him so that we could enter into the calm after the storm. That is salvation. Amazing. There's a greater hurricane that he endured. The hurricane of God's wrath against sin. And he did it for sinners like us. Why are we still afraid? Why 
are we not believing? The Jesus who calmed the storm in Mark 4 is the same Jesus who stands before you this morning calling you to take refuge in the shadow of his almighty wings. Indeed, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why I can say that. The same Jesus that was for the disciples in that boat is here for us today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he bids us, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest, rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So my message to us this morning is, look to him through the tempest of your affliction and find him faithful. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your almighty son, the one who stands before us this morning, having planted his footsteps in the sea, riding upon the storms of our life, directing them, guiding them for his glory and our eternal good. Would you build us up in the faith? Would you banish fear among us that we might believe that you, Lord Jesus, are sufficient for everything that befalls us today such that we will be with you in glory. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.